again everybody and welcome back to what's important now the podcast from the united states border patrol academy now today we are honored to have with us a gentleman who is the retired chief patrol agent of the rio grande valley sector the retired deputy chief of the united states border patrol retired chief of the u.s border patrol and uh, let's see retired acting deputy commissioner of cbp and finally retired acting director for immigration customs enforcement did i forget anything I was also the chief at Swanton Sector. The chief at Swanton Sector. <laughs> but yeah, you got most of it. <laughs> Mr. Ron Vitello, sir, thank you so much for being with us today. It's an honor, Jason. Thank you so much, Chief. So you're one of the guys that, uh, for me, growing up in the Border Patrol, I looked up to, and 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 I actually worked under you. Were you were uh, one of the key leaders that uh, that took the patrol in my generation to where it is today? Before you finally retired after about 34 years of government service, is that right? That's right. So. There's a lot of things I want to talk to you about. But first, how have you been? It's been good. It's been good. I recommend retirement when, it, when, it's, when it's time <laughs> for folks. Um, I, I started my own business. I did that for a little while as an independent consultant, helping companies navigate the Border Patrol, DHS, and CBP. Uh, that was going really well. And I, one of the clients I had was Axon. They're famous for making tasers and body-worn cameras. And so in October, they offered me a, a permanent position to oh, head good. their strategy and plans for uh, DHS. And so oh. in October, I started working for them. So you, you didn't actually retire? No. <laughs> Post-career. Most, most of us don't. I, I stayed in the D.C. area. My wife and I just moved into a new mm-hmm. place that we're settling in. And so, um, yeah, retirement's been great. And um, I've, I'm learning a lot about being in the private sector and, and still finding a way to help the mission. And I was going to say, I've seen you out there. You're still on news uh, news outlets, and you're still talking about the mission and supporting the men and women that are in uniform every day. And, of course, that's one of the reasons why we love you and your, and your wife so much is because you, you stay close to us, stay connected, and you're always you're always there as part of the family. I'm proud to do it. I think I owe it. It's given, I'm giving back in a different way. Well, it, it, we appreciate it. And, it, again, it's uh, you're, you're somebody that's been very, very special in terms of my Border Patrol life. And so uh, I want to kind of introduce you to – the trainees that are coming in as if they don't already know who you are because they, if they haven't been watching the news maybe, but, but you've still been out there. But I want to go over a little bit more of your bio for their benefit, if you'll bear with me. Sure. And one of the things I want to start off with is that you joined the U.S. Border Patrol in 1985. Correct. As class 174? That's correct. Do you remember, did you guys have a class motto? Uh, mean Green, 174, Laredo, Texas, hardcore. Laredo, Texas. Oh. And, of course, you st- <laughs> and you started in Laredo, Texas. I and, did. And there, there's a story that comes to mind. I remember whenever you came down there when I was the acting chief, and you talked about there's a, a, a training building out there, and there was, a, there was gas pumps that have literally been out there since you EOD'd out there. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's, it, 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 it was really good memories there. Um, you know this, but Laredo ha- is one of those places in the patrol that has every facet of what we do. Mm-hmm. Checkpoints, train check, downtown, bike patrol. It has all of it, sign cut. Um, and so it was a great training ground. Um, and busy. Yeah, it was quite active most of the time that I was there. I, I learned from the guys that were the senior journeymen when I was on the ground in the 80s. Um, a lot of them were Vietnam-influenced. Mm-hmm. 
And so they had they had served in a couple of different ways before they found their way into the Border Patrol. Um, and so I got a lot of good mentorship and learned a lot from from the good ones and the bad ones, as they of say, course. right? Because yeah. not every journeyman you work with has got all the things it takes to be a good agent. <laughs> well, they say good or bad, everybody serves as an example of some type. That's you know? right. That's right. So I was fortunate. I had good supervisors. Um, I dedicated myself to learning the language, uh, learning Spanish, because mm-hmm. I, I did pretty well. I was in group three at the <laughs> academy, but um, I definitely honed my skills based on some advice that I had gotten from my mentors. And then, the, you know, a couple years in, I was lucky to meet my wife um, as we started dating and hanging out her, in her home. Everybody spoke Spanish. And so it was kind of sink or swim for me. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I, I had a really great experience in Laredo. In fact, I went back, I, I left and then went back, which is kind of a rare thing for some folks, especially yeah. younger uh, couples. But yeah, we went back and enjoyed it for another five years. Both of my children were born there. Well, I definitely want to talk about Nuri and your family because you, you have a very amazing wife that also does her part for, for the men and women of this uh, this organization. And then you have two really neat kids. That uh, One's a chef. I know that. And it's just, uh, we could go on and on about that aspect of it. But I want to talk a little bit about the Border Patrol as you knew it whenever you came in under the Department of Justice, INS, versus how it was when you left it. Kind of paint that picture for the new folks that are there that probably had come in since CBP was formed. It's very interesting. When I came into the Border Patrol, I didn't know as much about it. I, I got recruited out of junior college. Um, I was encouraged by a couple of instructors that, you know, hey, federal space is better. You know, the Border Patrol is a great organization. And so when the recruiters came around, I was a little bit more interested went through the matriculation, took the test and got assigned. And it was interesting because I told family and friends that if I didn't get assigned in San Diego, I was living in San Diego at the time. If I didn't get assigned in San Diego, you know, I wasn't going to leave my friends for, for some job, you know, kind of thing. And then, but when that letter came in, I happened to be out of town. My dad, you know, I called to chicken after we got off the road and my dad said, Hey, you got this letter from the INS at the time, Department of Justice. And I said, well, open it up. Let's see what it says. He said, well, they're offering you a job and you have to be in Laredo, Texas on the, tw- on the 19th. <laughs> And it was only a couple of weeks out from that day. And so we kind of, I shaved a couple of days off of the ski trip we were on. And as I was driving back, my friends, and when I got home, my mom, and then some of the other people that I had told I wasn't going to leave to go to Texas or some, anywhere else, um, they're like, hey, well, why did you change your mind? And I just, you know what? When I read those words, when my dad read those words to me over the phone, I was like, I'm going to go do this. I'm going to. It felt right. Yeah. It felt like, you know, this is a time in my life where my enthusiasm matches up with an opportunity. So I took it. And the Border Patrol itself was a much smaller organization with a more singular-focused mission. Probably about 4,300 at the time. We were part of like a little mini hiring surge, mm-hmm. um, but very different than the organization you see today. I think in those days, um, people, if you lived in a border community, you knew how important the Border Patrol was for the, sort of the overall ambiance of a city and the security regime, et cetera. But if you were outside of the Border Patrol, if you didn't live near the border, not very well known. Even for me, when I was in San Diego, yeah, they were in the news once in a while, but I didn't, I didn't connect it with the important work that it did. But if you live on the line, you know how important you it know. is. And so here's an example of the difference in sophistication is today. Um, there, were, there were many days where I would come into the office uh, to work a swing shift, and there'd only be three or four of us. Um, and you have to wait for a radio. In Laredo. In Laredo. Yeah. And, that, and that's 100, I think that's 188 miles 171. or 171. Yeah. yeah. So that's a lot of border to cover with four people, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and sometimes you had to wait for a car to come in. Sometimes you had to wait for a radio if you wanted to actually have a radio sometimes. Uh, a lot of work alone in the middle of nowhere. And I literally had bosses that would hand a set of keys to you and say, you got the north, you got upriver today. And then you... And upriver meant 
dozens of miles. Oh, yeah. Did. All the way to Del Rio Sector yeah. Line. And, um, and we all held each other to account for how well we did the work. But there wasn't somebody scrutinizing what miles you patrolled and what, you know, what exactly you were going to involve. You could, you could work the highway. You could work upriver. You could work far upriver, close to town, the train yard. So we had a lot of independence. And like I said, we were dedicated to doing well. But there wasn't really an expectation. That, well, there was only four of you. Yeah, I mean, four of you for 107. Just trying to trying to fathom that, wrap your head around that a little bit. So, for for that many miles, and we're not talking about inland in the checkpoints. We're not talking about because Laredo has Hebronville, it has Freer, it has you know the I-35 checkpoint. It goes all the way up towards uh, San Antonio and into Dallas. Those areas we're not even talking about. Right. Right. No, this is this is the, the immediate line, and and there was very few of us. Now. I, you can imagine that the cartel violence and some of the problems that Mexico had weren't on the surface in, in the 80s. I mean, they were there. They've always had trouble. But it was a very different environment for agents. It, but fun? Oh, yeah. Yeah, just great. Like, great learning, um, all kinds of opportunity. I mean, we really, I really had a great experience both times I was there. Was it still a family? Did you still feel that, that close-knit, uh, kindred uh spirit to to your fellow agents back then very much so because when i eod'd in laredo in 85 we had maybe one person in my class that knew anything about laredo let had let alone had been from there um, and then the station makeup we might have had two people in the entirety of laredo north which i started in uh that were actually born there and wow. so a lot of camaraderie because we all had come from someone else someplace else and had a lot of experiences to share and then learn from from each other in the new job and so starting off as a gs5 like we all do or did i think now as a seven uh, and and to what you became later on in your career and i, I want to continue with your uh, with your bio just a little bit so with 33 years of service and in, in cbp you were the acting deputy commissioner and in this role you oversaw over 60,000 employees and a budget of 13 billion dollars yeah. That's a long road to travel. <laughs> yeah, no, it's yeah. completely different. You know, if you would have told me that I was going to be at the top of the pyramid when I was an agent in Laredo, I would have told you you were crazy. I, I, didn't, I wouldn't even have fathomed that I would want to do such a thing. But you get to a certain point where you see an opportunity to fix a problem or you see an opportunity to make a contribution in a unique way. And so when I've had those opportunities in my career, when I went to Nogales, when I went to the regional office, when I went to headquarters the first and second time, I always had a goal in mind that that place needs this kind of influence or I think I can solve this problem for the broader workforce. Um, so I've always had an opportunity. I took a couple of lateral positions just because like when I went to Nogales, I was already a GS-13. I could have waited for like a, a chief's job at a sector somewhere. But Nogales had some really unique problem sets and I was very intrigued. and. The, the management team that I was on in the regional office all moved to Tucson Sector when David Aguilar took command there. Mm -hmm. And so a chance to stay on that team and work on a unique problem set, the tunnels and the mm -hmm. checkpoints in Tucson and focus on Nogales because that's where that tunnel problem is. And you started, so you saw how the organization its mission evolved over the last three decades from that that smaller, relatively unknown entity that you that you joined to now we're starting to talk about going to unique problem sets with tunnels and, and other things that probably never even entered your mind whenever you joined the Border Patrol. That's right. That's right. And so we, we, we essentially did the first prototyping for the tunnel fix at Nogales. 
Uh, Kevin Stevens was my boss then. Aguilar was the chief. They gave us the ability to breadboard some things, right? So put some fixes together. Uh, and it was all very rudimentary and it was all agent specific. We did it ourselves. Um, but that solution in its purest form, a barrier that is flexible enough to let floodwaters in, but durable and monitored well enough to keep the bad guys out, that we put the first prototype of that together. And so I was very proud of that work. And then Tucson for many, many years suffered from not having checkpoints. Mm -hmm. And those of us that have been in the patrol for a little while, we realized the importance of a checkpoint. In and of itself, it's not a silver bullet, but it helps with efforts on the line. And Tucson suffered for many, many years because they were not allowed to have checkpoints with any permanency. So it was always kind of catch as catch can. So I worked on that problem. And that was not only an operational problem, it was like a public relations community sure. involvement problem. And we, we made very good progress. I think Bob Gilbert kind of sealed the deal with the local leadership, but it was because the team that I worked with kind of learned what the do's and don'ts were in kind of convincing the public not to oppose it, just to oppose it. And so that was, I'm proud of that work too. And that's one of the things I think we spend a lot of time trying to educate and explain to the public and our partners and stakeholders is there is no silver bullet, as you say, no panacea. So it's not, there. the, the fence is not a standalone solution. The checkpoints are not a standalone solution. You have those layered defenses that combined create that, that ideal situation that makes it more advantageous for us to be able to provide border security. Yeah. And Nogales, to their credit, before I arrived, had a really good community relations outreach. They had a group of like a citizens advisory panel that they met with every month. Um, and then in Tucson, there was a lot going on in the community at the time. There's been some scarring through like through the 80s. There was a big dust up between the faith community and the government because of what was happening in El Salvador and and the, and the migration from there and what, how the government was dealing with it. And so you had this kind of beachhead in Nogales where the community was very, it was a very two-way conversation. It wasn't always fun. It wasn't always solving problems, but it was open dialogue. And so we sort of used that beachhead to broaden out in Tucson. And, uh, and so we had some success in, because if, if the community doesn't trust you or if people who represent the community or say they represent the community, um, and they, they can get on TV and talk about how bad or good that's something that's going on. It has a big difference. We're seeing that now, right? You're seeing people in the local communities like Del Rio uh, and in the Valley very concerned. The mayor of Gila Bend, very concerned about the traffic that he's seeing each and every day, not just the unaccompanied children, but all of the traffic that kind of had died down for a while. And so having their trust is the most important thing. And then having a dialogue and getting their support for individual initiatives or changes that they may be seeing. Um, it, it's always been something I cared a lot about. And I'll just give you a quick example. When I was in uh, RGV, I took that job in 2007 as the chief. It was one of those things where I was in the right place at the right time with the right experience because I thought it would be a couple more years before I could get a field command. But it kind of, things kind of fell into place with other retirements and, you know, like, it all worked out and it was a place I'd always wanted to work. My wife grew up there. And when I got on the ground, it was right after the Secure Fence Initiative in 2006 had gotten passed. So the department in 2003 didn't exist until March 3rd. Mm -hmm. And then we went through all of that growth and build up. 2006, they do a major immigration package, which includes 700 miles of wall to be installed on the Southwest border. So I land on the ground, EOD is the chief and every other member of the community wants to know are you going to take my land? Are you going to build a wall here? And so the conversation, instead of here's what my operational goals are, it was 
yes, we need to talk about that. You know, we are going to determine whether we have an operational condition that needs walled. We have terrain in the valley that would be beneficial to have a barrier on. And we started those discussions and there was a lot of nervousness. There were a lot of people against it. And you know how the media kind of spins things like they they thrive on controversy, especially between the government and citizens, especially as it relates to border and immigration security concerns. Uh, But we got to a point where in Hidalgo County, we made an agreement with the local water district and the county judge. The county judge in Texas, most people know, is in charge of security Mm -hmm. and emergency preparedness. And so the judge knew that the levees were sort of the the actual, the physical line is really there on the levee. The the real border is is in the middle of the river, but the government or anybody can't necessarily build structures south of the levee sure because yeah. it was have treaties with mexico and the way the, the water flows mm-hmm. yeah. and so the judge says hey you know we were we we're having this conversation he says hey what if we upgrade these levees which was a need that they already had before anybody talked about putting wall down um what if we did these things simultaneously and we signed an agreement all the way up at the top of the the department level again that's one of those areas where having that open dialogue understanding where the community is and be able to bridge that was really, really important. I'm proud of that. They they saved like millions and millions of dollars in insurance premiums because if they didn't upgrade those levees, everybody that lived in the protection zone around those levees would have had to pay higher rates. And then FEMA would have decertified them and then they would have to rehabilitate them. So we did this joint project in which we got a barrier to help the Border Patrol and they got rehabilitated levees at the same time. So what I hear is because of the open dialogue, good communication and people working towards a common goal, you were able to find a solution that benefited everybody instead of trying to stop the other from getting what they wanted. Yeah, it's a true win-win, which like is, you know, it's everybody's goal, you know, in government or in business, you know, you want to try to find that common ground. But uh, this was actually one of those examples where it worked out in, in, in everyone's favor. And you talked about how during the transition to CBP and when it came into being, and you played a key role in that as well as a subject matter expert going from the Department of Justice and the Immigration and Naturalization Service to what would become the Department of Homeland Security under the newly formed Customs and Border Protection. And now Border Patrol finds itself a member of a new organization with an entirely different mission. Talk a little bit about or compare and contrast the mission of then versus what we have today. Yeah, that's a great question. So after the attack on 9-11, everything as it related to border security changed in the country. The, the American public's expectation of what it looked like on the immigration, borders, all of these things were part of the conversation. And so the department gets, b- before the department gets built, INS recognizes that they have to do, at the time they were in charge of the Border Patrol, the Immigration and Naturalization Service under the Department of Justice, they realize they got to do business differently after 9-11. And one of the reforms or the milestones in April, I believe, of 2000 and to maybe a little bit before that, but but sometime after 9-11, they restructure the chain of command at the Border Patrol. Prior to the attack, prior to this reform, the chief at the headquarters had kind of an organized train and equip mission. So administratively, budgets and training and the academies and how resources were allocated, but not necessarily operational control, which says, here's your goal for sector X. Here's the goal for us nationally. He did not have that kind of influence over the organization. His authority passed through regional offices, which then got pushed out to the sectors. So post 9-11 reform, DOJ and INS restructured the chain of command, giving the chief operational control. 
So much more organization around planning and goal setting and strategy across the division. And so that change happened even before the department. Fast forward a little bit, we switch over, that chain of command becomes integrated into the larger CVP in the creation of the department. Uh, and we were fortunate enough to have leaders like Robert Harris, Gus De Lavinia, and David Aguilar, along with the first commissioner of CVP, Rob Bonner, who were very focused on making sure that the capability of the Border Patrol grew mm -hmm. and grew quickly. And so that strengthening of the chain of command, adding a strategy for planning and resource allocations so that we could grow smartly was the first years of the work at the department. And so we published a new strategy in 2004, which focused on operations and control mm -hmm. at the border. Um, and then each iteration of those strategies has been beneficial to like how the Border Patrol operated. So we started planning in a way that didn't occur before 9-11. We taught ourselves to do it quickly right before the creation of the department. And so we kind of folded into CBP as an entire unit um, and learned sort of that bureaucracy and what the, what the command and control relationships were. But we're really in a good place in, in that we had developed resources in each of the sectors and the corridors so that we could start planning as a, a national team versus individual discrete operations in each sector. You hear that story so often for many law enforcement organizations post or pre 9-11 where there were silos and everything was disparate. There was no centralized unified effort. And so the Border Patrol was a good example of that. The, the sectors kind of had their own autonomy. They answered on an administrative level to, to headquarters is what I'm hearing you say. And so there really wasn't a unifying strategy put out to everybody for border security until you guys started doing that around 2004. Yeah, yeah. They, the, the first actual strategy that I ever heard of while I was in was written in 1994. It was like that hold the line time frame Day in keeper, San Diego. Yeah. And so it wasn't widely adopted by like Texas. Yeah. <laughs> right. So like so, it, you know, they, they proved success in the way they allocated and planned in San Diego sector with hold the line. Um, but we got better hold the line and then it was gatekeeper but we got much better at that as an organization in the aftermath of 9-11 because we knew we had we couldn't keep doing what we were doing because we needed to get more capable as quickly as possible and we were quite sure that we were going to grow because the expectation not just in the border communities but nationally that we're going to have a secure border and so you know we, we've we sort of capitalized on where we were at that moment um, but on behalf of the whole mission, not just because, you know, we wanted to do better. We, we, we had to. From there grew the, the pillars of personnel, technology, and infrastructure as kind of the interlocking requirements that we needed to be able to do the mission. And the Border Patrol grew exponentially right. in size. Right. Yeah, we doubled in the, in the term of the Bush administration. We doubled the size of the Border Patrol. And most of that growth was in the second half. Um, and that's when all the fencing or the, the wall was laid down. Uh, the Secure Fence Act, that, that's when all of those you know, potential reforms and all the reform proposals had a big pay down on the border security uh, mission. And so we, we, were, we were prepared to, when asked, give people, hey, these are the personnel, technology, and infrastructure needs across the board. And that, those iterations and the headquarters has really gotten better at that over the years because of the iterations and because of the understanding, like you mentioned, there's, there weren't 20 disparate efforts in each sector, but there was a unified look at the resources, at the priorities, and a mutual understanding amongst the leadership that we needed to 
to plan strategically so that we can operate effectively. And now, of course, we become a border security entity, all threats, not just focused on immigration, although immigration remains a part of our mission. But in the days of INS, that was our primary mission. Yeah, it was, Look, you know, I, I had a lot of folks that I went to high school with or when, was in college with and, oh, yeah, those guys, you guys do all the immigration work. When I knew I was being on the ground every day, there was all kinds of things that had nothing to do with uh, uh, immigration that we were dealing with, right? The contraband smuggling, actual dope, you know, those kinds of security uh, risks have always existed on the border. But 9-11 kind of centered everybody on the idea that, yeah, there, immigration is a piece of this, but there's much more uh, that goes into planning, strategizing, and then protecting that border. So I bring that up because today that persists as something that's very high profile as part of our mission set, the immigration piece. And what you dealt with and what I dealt with and when I came in on the immigration side is very different than what we're seeing today. You saw a lot of uh, single adult males coming from, from Mexico and maybe the Northern Triangle countries as economic migrants looking for, uh, looking for work. And now we start seeing a completely different population, but that the problem set that that brings is the same because – our mission is border security. We're out there looking for the criminals and we're out there looking for the people that want to do harm to our country. We're looking for the contraband, the narcotics. And the immigration piece, while important, can overcome some of those other efforts. Yeah, it, it gets it gets categorized as something that is like completely our responsibility or, you know, it overshadows the work that we do in counterterrorism. It overshadows the work that we do in drug enforcement. It overshadows the threats and the risks that we uncover in uh, human trafficking. And you also, uh, on top of that, you also have this mindset that immigration law, like in a, in a city like Chicago, Cook County, like they won't let ICE in the jail there, right? So you have these examples in these big urban cities where people are saying, we don't want immigration enforcement to occur in our, in our towns and cities. Uh, and so you have this kind of, hey, let's fix the border. We want a secure thing. We want, we want to welcome immigrants. But once everybody makes it past the line and they're in our town and city, we don't want them. Because, because immigration enforcement is difficult and involves people. It's not a commodity, right? These are aunts and uncles and cousins and youngsters and moms and dads and husbands and wives. And so there's always this emotional side to it. And it, like I said, it's unfortunate there are places in our country where people are saying we shouldn't enforce this law because it is painful. It does you know, have impact. In, in negative way in some in some locations. But I always tell folks, like when I get a chance to go on TV, immigration enforcement is has been law in the books since the, the teens. And it can be changed. And if people don't want to do interior immigration enforcement, Congress can write those laws and pass them. But as it stands now, those laws are on the books. And so saying it's not important or refusing cooperation, I think is is short-sighted because that just increases the threat of those same communities. And, and to those people, the people that are in the hands of the smugglers that are making that, uh, that, that trek, uh, we've seen it. We've seen the, what the stash house conditions look like. We've seen the tractor-trailer loads where they're locked in the back of a, of a semi-trailer. We've seen when they're left out in the desert uh, to die, the rescues that take place every single year by the men and women in, in the Border Patrol. doesn't get talked about much, but you know, having illegal immigration perpetuates that type of activity that very definitely impacts those people that are simply coming up looking for a better way of life. That's right. That right. It, it, it involves a chaotic scenario that's in the pipeline. So where people are leaving from and going through, 
um, because the cartels are in control of that movement. And so having people in the pipeline, they get to tax the smugglers and the individuals, they get to extort them. They peel off people for human trafficking. They peel off people to do, you know, to mule dope for them. And so that chaos breeds more lawlessness in the region, more lawlessness on the border itself. And then that impacts our people because when we're distracted by caring for children and families, then the only people that are gaining in that scenario are actually the cartels themselves. And when I was at ICE, one of the things that we noticed was there was a very focused activity at MS-13 to understand the organization, to figure out how it worked and think um, where their resources were. And so they targeted MS-13 fairly well. There's a couple of famous neighborhoods in the in uh, in New York, where they they they're kind of the center of gravity. Fairfax, Virginia, close to where I live now, they have a center of gravity there. And so, ICE HSI sort of attacks the financial infrastructure and goes after that hierarchy. And lots of felony convictions of people who were in MS-13 and also in the country illegally. And what you realize is that many of them came to the United States as youngsters. Mm-hmm. They came here as juveniles and were put in the system that exists now and then found themselves in the same gangs that they ran from home to get away from. And you're talking about an entirely different side of ICE that most people don't even think about or equate to ICE, and that is going after those criminal organizations themselves that, that are in the country. Right, right. Yeah, so it's, it's an important distinction to make because a group like MS-13, this is a windfall for them. What's happening today on the border, all these children coming, it's a windfall for them. Most of that immigration is based on economics. They have, there's no opportunity. There's no trusted governance in the Northern Triangle. And so people are fleeing that. You can understand that as a human. Um, but a lot of them, too many of them, will be taken advantage of right here. So let's go back and let's talk about uh, the, the actual process because I want to explain the system that, uh, that a person goes through once they enter our custody and why we start seeing... We've seen surges. We've seen a lot of folks at different times of, of our careers. Uh, there's Tucson was very busy in the 90s. San Diego was very busy, and RGV for the last you know better part of 10 years has been has been very busy. We've seen surges of people coming across, and my sense is that it will probably continue to happen down the road if we don't get better at uh, at, at locking it down. So, the system and why we end up having overcrowded cells in border patrol facilities. A lot of folks don't understand how that works. So in my mind, you have a flow that you have to deal with that the system, the entire system where the Border Patrol starts is responsible. And if one of those pieces breaks down, then you start to have the backlog and you start to have the overcrowding. Can you talk through having been at ICE and having been at CBP, what that system entails and where the problem sets occur? Yeah, that's good. So, so the last surge prior to the one we are having now, which is much bigger than anything we've ever seen, Uh, there was a scenario in which because of the way the law is operationalized, young children who came to the border or families that came to the border with children were essentially being booked in at Border Patrol, right? They're what we call processing. They're supposed to be in Border Patrol custody for a short period of time, by law, 72 hours. And then they get transferred. If they're families, they were being transferred over to ICE. And if they're children alone, then they're transferred into the HHS ORR, which that's Health and Human Services, Office of Refugee and Resettlement. By law, they are the custodians of unaccompanied children after they're put into the system by Border Patrol. Uh, And they typically have never been prepared for the kinds of activity that we're seeing now, and they weren't 
again in 2018 when it was when I was transitioning from CVP over into ICE. Um, and so if they don't have shelter space for those children, the Border Patrol is in this terrible situation in which they cannot let children go and they need to be put into the system before they can be moved down the line. And so there's a bottleneck there and Border Patrol, unfortunately, is stuck with sort of picking up the pieces. Because we don't have the luxury of just, we can't turn a 10-year-old kid out the door and just say, have fun, and do right. good things. We have to make sure they get handed off to somebody that's going to take care of them. And that's where ORR comes into play. And, and what you're saying, and as I, as I understand it as well, they have to be resourced to accommodate the type of flow that we're seeing, and they simply haven't been. Correct. And there's, there's a couple of different reasons for that. In the 2018 timeframe, ICE or CBP did not have a mechanism to allow families to get booked into the process, to get processed, and then held until their deportation hearing. Because of the way the law is operationalized and some case law on the floor of settlement, families have to be released within 20 days. That is not enough time for them to have their asylum claims heard. That's not enough time for them to get through a system and have a judge adjudicate whether they can be here or not, whether they're asylee, refugee or not. And so essentially, ICE becomes the release mechanism for the bookends that we do at Border Patrol. So the, so the people and the files move through Border Patrol over to ICE, and then those people are essentially let go from ICE custody. Um, that's for families. And then the children, it's the same way. And like I said, HHS wasn't resource for the 2018 surge, and ICE did not have the capability. The system doesn't have the capability right. because of the way the, the law works to do the family thing. And so every surge gets started by the lack of consequence. And so if large numbers of families from the Northern Triangle are being released from U.S. custody, then they encourage other families to come and make that trek. And be exposed to the same dangers during that right, trek. Right, right. There's, there's nothing, you know, like all of that is, is smuggling. A lot of it is human trafficking. They get taken advantage of by corrupt governments, by these criminal organizations, by smugglers. We saw this thing on the TV the other day with this little boy who was left out in the middle of the desert all by himself, had no idea where he was. Or dropped off the fence and then the smugglers run back. Uh, run right, back right. So, that, so there is a, there's a certain amount of misery that's being handed out, even by the people who think they're benefiting by coming here. Um, and so the 2018-19 surge was abated by the Migrant Protection Protocols, which is an agreement we signed with Mexico to allow families and individuals to wait in Mexico during the pendency of their asylum claim. And so they were brought in, they were booked in, brief stay with Border Patrol, and they were given documentation that says, you're in the system, you will have a court date. In the meantime, Mexico is going to allow you to stay here until that time is up. And so what happened there, and then they did a similar accord with the Northern Triangle, so the, like a, a safe third country. So if you came through Guatemala from El Salvador, then you could go back there and wait for your asylum claim, or they could repatriate you. That was on them. But we had an agreement with the region and Mexico so that people were not released into the United States. And then because of the pandemic, the Title 42 authority was issued and enforced by CBP, that allowed us to take minors, even if they were alone, instead of them putting in shelters in the U.S., we arranged with their home countries to get them repatriated right back. We sent them back under safeguards into the custody of their home authorities. And so that stopped people from sending their children or bringing them their children to the border because waiting in Mexico wasn't the end game. Getting into the States and being released was the end game. And once you shut off that 
capability, then the whole flow stops because people aren't going to be successful. They're not going to sell their belongings and put themselves into hands of smugglers. And so in, in January 21st, they stopped enrolling people in the migrant protection protocols. They let everybody that was waiting in Mexico into the United States. Um, and then there's this rhetoric around the children being sent back. And that's a bad thing. And it's inhumane. So we turned that Title 42 enforcement for minors off. And so now we've encouraged the globe to send their children or bring their children to the border. Now, families are still being sent back under Title 42, um, but that really has a shelf life. I don't know how long we can continue to do that. Well, it exists because of the pandemic. And it so, does. And, and so there's a, there's a time and a place to, to invoke it and to use it, and we're in that right now. And you're right, it won't last forever, but once we, and, and God willing, we will get a handle on COVID-19 soon and everybody will start to return back to normal. But as, for right now, it's a, it's a necessity for the public health concerns that we have in the country. That's correct. And, and so the conditions are such now that there's no reason that the kids aren't going to come because they're going to be successfully placed in the United States. They, they go into HHS, and the whole mission at HHS is to care for them appropriately until they can place them with sponsors in the U.S. Sometimes that's family. Sometimes that's foster care. Um, and so that, that loop is open. And so that's going to encourage other people to come to the border. Um, and then we'll see what happens with the families. And then the single adults, you know, the, the economy is starting to pick back up. Uh, those regions have very difficult economic situations. You've heard about the storms and the governments are corrupt. The governance is bad. And so, the, you know, there's, there's plenty of reason to know why people are doing this. But what's encouraging them and enticing them is that we shut off our opportunity to close the loop on these significant populations. So the result, if I kind of put it into, into lay person speak is, so you have a flow that is, is caused by whatever, and then you have a system that's supposed to address that flow. And if that system cannot handle the volume of that flow, then you start seeing these bottlenecks. And in this entire system, the only ones that can't say no. That's right. That's is, a very good way to put it. Is border patrol. That's right. And so we get stuck with these huge populations in our holding centers that are not designed nor intended to hold people for long periods of time because we have no other choice. That's right. That's right. So so we went, the government, the CBP, the Border Patrol went out and bought all this temporary space, um, you know, medical care, dining facilities, places for people to shower and sleep and be safe in custody, but it's not adequate for the flow that's coming. And so it still looks pretty bad. It's still very difficult for the workforce um, because you know this, right? You're around people that, are, that have come to this job purposefully to help people and to patrol the border and to do all of the things that this job offers. And they're compassionate professionals, but they didn't sign up to be daycare workers, right? They really went out. They, they want to go out there and protect the border. Absolutely. And so this is a form of protecting the border, but not the one that you envision when you sign on the dotted line. Well, it's like anything else. If you're if you're on a on a road and you're taking a trip and you see a stranded motorist, you're gonna pull off and help. You, if there, there's a humanitarian side to all of us, and we see somebody in need, we see unaccompanied children, we see family units. Of course, we're gonna help, and and we're and we're happy to do it. But at some point, you want to get back on that trip and and get to where you're going. And for us, that's to get out on patrol and keep this country safe. That's right. So we need for the entire system to be able to accommodate that flow, or let's stop the flow in the first place. Correct. All right. Well, so that's a great picture, a great way to, to, to put it into perspective for everybody. So I want to switch gears a little bit. I want to talk about, go back to CBP and another thing that you had an integral role in. 
and that is our use of force policy and, and how we did a good job of becoming more transparent and showing uh, how we address uses of force. Uh, talk a little bit about how that uh, metamorphosis took place and, and what you did. Yeah, so in 2010, 11, and 12, uh, there were a lot of, there was a lot of scrutiny on the use of force events that were taking place around the country. There were some shootings where I think described by the organization that helped us, PERF, they called them bad facts shooting. Um, and, and PERF stands for? PERF is the Pol Police Executive Research Forum. Okay. They're essentially a think tank that all of the major cities and, and sheriffs are, are membership. Mm -hmm. And then they do studies and they publish findings. They do model policies. Um, I've been associated with them since like the 90s. Um, I've, do I've done some work. Um, the COPS program at Justice gives them quite a bit of uh, interact. There's a lot of interaction between the COPS program at the Department of Justice, which essentially grant funds local communities. And I did, back in those days, I did collaborative problem solving with them. That's that community dialogue mm -hmm. and how to solve problems together. And so after a couple of these events, high profile, internally, we as an institution, CBP, the department, and, and certainly the Board Patrol, decided that we needed to examine the use of force policy, talk about what the flaws and the import of it was, look at these particular events, and then decide on a, like a new way forward that included transparency and accountability. And I think one of the examples I would say is that CBP had a use of force policy, but the review for use of force was really sort of delegated to somebody else. It was either the Office of Professional Responsibility or the FBI, or uh, OIG sometimes took these cases. So there was a disparate sort of follow through on these cases. And then when the findings went back to CBP, at that time inside of the headquarters, it's very difficult to find out if people were held to account for mistakes, lack of training, or actual misconduct in the, in the use of force case that was at question. And so we looked like we didn't know what we were doing. Um, and inside of the bureaucracy, sometimes it's very hard to prove to people that that's not the case. <laughs> Good, boy. Good and it, point. And it's not because we're bad or malevolent or there was a thin green line or a thick green line. It wasn't anything like that. It was the inability of the bureaucracy to get you from point A to point B in a transparent way. And so we reviewed all the cases. Perf, we hired Perf to do a quick study, which was kind of a mistake in a way that they're really good at what they do but we gave them like an impossible timeline to review these cases. So they weren't allowed to go out and take measurements. They weren't allowed to go out and talk to people in these very unique scenarios that Border Patrol only is in. And those two, the two most unique ones are vehicles that are fleeing and they, have, you know, they, they try to run over a Border Patrol agent like you talked about a couple weeks ago, mm -hmm. Louis Aguilar. I mean, that's how he died. You know, he, his job was to protect that border and he was putting spike strips down for a known smuggler. Mm -hmm. Um, and that guy, instead of getting flat tires, decided to kill Louie. Yeah. So it's a very unique scenario that we're in, that it only occurs in the Border Patrol. Well, it doesn't only occur in the Border Patrol, but it's, it, but it's not, it's very rare in an urban setting to have that kind of scenario. Mm -hmm. And so when Perf looked at that case, and when they looked at what they call projectiles, rockings, which are also very unique in the scenario as it relates to working the line, um, their recommendations were inconsistent with all the other help that they were going to give us. They made the, over a hundred different recommendations about the policy, about these particular cases. They talked a lot about de-escalation and the tools. And then they made recommendations that 
that we should, by policy, not allow firing at a moving vehicle or firing at people just because they're throwing things at you. Or stepping in front of a vehicle to prevent it from escaping. Right, right. And so we took all of those recommendations, implemented them with the exclusion of those two, um, and essentially rebuilt the policy itself and what was in and what was out. We made huge investments in less than lethal technologies. So we deployed that across. And less than lethal, for those that don't know, is the pepper ball launchers, the tasers, the pepper spray, all those things that give the agents and officers out in the field an option, an alternative, instead of having to go to deadly force. That's right. That's right. And so the, so the policy was built on the, the pillars of we needed to change the training curriculum. We needed to provide different tools, in this case, de-escalation tools like taser and pepper ball, et cetera. Um, and then the policy review itself. And so we built a mechanism. Carla Provost was kind of in charge of, she was the deputy at uh, Office of Professional Responsibility at the time, Internal Affairs. And they rebuilt the way we review those cases. So instead of letting the FBI do the case in San Diego, we let that occur. They, you know, if they take jurisdiction over a case, that's fine. But we paralleled the investigation all throughout. They established boards at the headquarters that included all of the attorneys, the training department, operators, uh, the civil rights and civil liberties unit, the, the civil rights division of the Justice Department. So they put a panel together so when the findings came in, CBP would review it with all of those perspectives and then determine what recommendations to make about policy, about misconduct, if that was the case, or if there's a gap in training. So I sat on that National Use of Force Review Board that you're talking about, and there was even science and technology had representation. That's there. right. And what I found was interesting, and this is something I don't think a lot of people know or think about. By the time that gets to us, the criminal side has already been adjudicated. So it, it comes to us. There are, there are two different uh, aspects that we look at in a deadly force situation, and that's going to be was there a criminal act, and that takes priority. Once that's determined to have been the case or not, then it comes back to us for administrative action. And that administrative action can go to disciplinary action on the part of the employee or not. And so just because a person doesn't get charged with a crime does not mean they can't get days off or demoted or even terminated from employment based on the administrative findings. And then you look at what can we do to prevent this from happening again. That's where you get to the policy and the training. All of that was encompassed in this new policy and this new way of doing things that you helped create. Yeah, yeah. And, th- and that, that, that changed the, your curriculum here. Right. We went to a scenario based training curriculum Mm to prepare agents and officers so that when they walk through or train through the use of force and the continuum, that they understood what alternatives they had and they got to practice in this environment so they were better at it. And so all of those things like the board doesn't only just say whether it's misconduct or not. Is it within policy or not? Did we address it in the policy? Do we need to address it in the policy? And then the same thing for training. What is, is there a gap in the training? How can we fill that gap if that's the case? Um, and then that the finding for the board goes to the operator in DC, so the chief of the border patrol in the case of a border patrol shooting. Um, and then they would make a determination based on the totality of the casework, the recommendation of the board and, and any changes and she signs off on that. And then it goes to the commissioner's office. And once the deputy commissioner and the commissioner review it and concur with the findings or send it back to be addressed in some other way, once that concurrence is obtained, then that gets published on the website at CBP. And so you have all of the accountability pieces, all of the comprehensive review for use of force, and then a public statement that says, here's what happened on the day, 
here's what the use of force and here's how we adjudicated it. Um, and then here's what here's what we want you to know about it. So I bring this up because I think it's a really neat example of how CBP has grown and evolved. In the big scheme of things, we're still a young agency. We've only been around since 2003. That's right. And so we continue to learn and evolve and, and get better. And this is one of those good examples where there was no process because when all of these agencies were thrown together and we started defining who we were and what our mission was going to be under this newly formed department, all these other things had to play catch up. Right. And it doesn't happen overnight. Right. And when you're thinking about a government entity and you're thinking about something of this size and magnitude, when you think about growth and expectations, it can be generational. Right. Right. No, no, it, it's, it's a good point. And then there's, there's been another iteration published of the use of force. So I think we got the equipment and the training right. We definitely got the policy right. Um, but I think this latest iteration, as I understand it, I haven't gone chapter and verse on it, but it emphasizes the training for de-escalation as well. And that's a conversation that all of law enforcement is having in the aftermath of what happened in Ferguson. You know, we're all watching the trial now with George Floyd. And so there's a, there is a perception out there that, you know, we're not doing this correctly or there's, you know, there's, a, there's some friction on the lack of trust in some communities. And so I think CBP has done a really good job and the Border Patrol for sure about the training changes, uh, the equipment issue uh, as it relates to de-escalation. Um, and the transparency, I think we've, we've done a really good job. We're a little bit ahead, actually, to, than some departments. But um, this, this last iteration talks a little bit more about the techniques for es- de-escalation. And I think, I think we're better off because we have all those other elements kind of nailed down. And then this adds a little bit more um, transparency and gives more tools to the individual. So I agree. I, th- I think we're better than most. We're ahead. But that doesn't mean we stop. Right. At the end of the day, our, our goal has to be the public's trust. And so we have to continue to do whatever is, is, is possible to make sure that we preserve that because that's who we serve. That's that's correct. Great points. Great. Uh, that, that's a great example. Let's talk about another aspect that's unique to the Border Patrol. A lot of folks that aren't associated with us don't realize we don't work eight-hour days. We work at least 10-hour days. And this is another thing that you had a, a key role in. There was a time when we were on a pay system called administratively uncontrollable overtime, which was very relevant when you came in and the uh, the Border Patrol was a much smaller organization. And we transitioned to the Border Patrol Pay Reform Act during the time that uh, during your tenure uh, to basically be able to do the same thing. But talk a little bit about those and then explain for everybody why do Border Patrol agents have to work 10 hours as opposed to eight hour days? Yeah, that's it's interesting. Uh, so think about, uh, you know, in, in 2014, our overtime pay system was called administratively uncontrollable. <laughs> so I mean, like in the modern day, I mean, that, that thing was built in the 50s and it was built for a much smaller federal agency. Everybody was, all the federal agencies were on that plan. And it, it, its design, nuts and bolts is, you're working your shift as you come to the end of your eight hours of assigned time, there are other things you need to do to finish, collect evidence, do an interview, get back to the station, whatever it was, but something practical that didn't allow you to get back before the eight hours was up. And, and life in the Border Patrol was like that everywhere. Life in DEA was like that everywhere. Life in ATF was like that everywhere. And so it was very common for us to be assigned an eight-hour shift, but in fact work 10 or more. And the compensation was based on those first two hours you basically got 25% of your base pay for the, for a 10-hour day. 
And then if you exceeded biweekly, the, whatever the 110 hours was, then there was an additional pay called Federal Labor Standards Act. FLSA, yeah. And that is based on the idea that we're in a public sector, we had a public sector union, nobody works for free. So if the compensation for AUO ended here, but I worked here, then the government was going to compensate me. And that did good because it served the mission. We got our stuff done, but it was difficult for the agency to justify to OMB, maybe the Congress, um, ourselves even, of how much are you going to spend every year on these amounts? You, there's a lot of overtime out there. Now, no, let's face it, no one's getting rich off of FLSA right. and, and AUO at the time. We were using that as the resource to get to finish things. And so over time, there had been a couple of scandals where people were accused of only working eight hours, but claiming 10. That kind of ran around and, you know, we got better at the discipline and how to use it and how to record it. Um, but it slowly transitioned into the standard shift being a 10-hour day. You were, on the books, we were only assigned eight, but it was a very – leadership uh, assigned people for missions they knew they couldn't complete in 10 hours or in, in eight hours. And so that's where the 10-hour day was born. And then it morphed again, and over the years, that was like sort of the standard boilerplate. This is what we're going to do every day. Everybody's going to work 10 hours because these guys are going to come in at eight. We're going to overlap with them for two hours. We're going to finish as much as we can, and we're going to come back tomorrow. We just did it long enough, and it became routine. Yes. Yeah. And so the, the, the institution relied on that resource of a 10-hour day for every agent. And then in 20. 2014 or 15, um, the Department of Homeland Security, after some, one of the things the merger did, there was friction between how we were paid and how some of the policies we had versus some of the policies that OFO had, and pay was one of them. Because they got paid for every minute they were on the job, and if they were assigned for eight, they went home at the end of eight. Because they have a different environment. But then we had places in the headquarters at the academy where we were working side by side with our brothers in blue, and they were going home, and we were staying. Yep. And, and getting an additional two hours of pay worth 25% of our base. And so some people saw that as malfeasance and fraud and went to OIG and the Office of Special Counsel. And that whirled around in the internal affairs kind of scenario, both at the uh, Special Counsel um, and at the department. And a finding got back to the department that said the, u the current use of AUO and FLSA by the Border Patrol or anybody else that was out there was in contrary to law. It was, it was illegal and we had to fix it. And so we started a conversation with lawyers and pay experts and people at the uh, office of um, um, OPM, Office of Professional Management. Mm -hmm. We started a conversation just to figure out, okay, we really need this resource it doesn't have to be in its current form, but we need to be able to schedule people in this way because institutionally this is the way we've been doing it. And they gave us a bunch of rules that said you have to do this, you have to do that, and you have to do the other. And when leadership and operators interpreted those rules, it was impossible in, in my mind for sure to be able to justify the way we were using these resources if they stayed in their current form. And so it was decided in conjunction with the discussion at leadership, and then the union was very active on this case as well because they, we were all facing a cut in pay. You know, we were basically going to be having overtime only in places that were overwhelmed with work. And at the time, that would have been Tucson. But 
we were looking for a change that allowed us to keep that 10-hour day resource. And so we sat down after some back and forth, we sat down with the union. They had a proposal that they brought forward that I saw as an operator to being favorable. And I spent I spent hours and hours of my career um, in 13, 14, uh, and just trying to figure out where that was to try to get leadership buy-in. And then we basically had a campaign um, with Congress, supported by the leadership at the department, to fix it. And the fix was the Border Patrol Pay Reform Act, which allowed us to compensate similarly to AUO, but not have this FLSA charge on the back end. So when agents exceed the compensation that allows for in what's now called BAPRA, that their their compensation is in the form of comp time. Comp time. And so there's a lot that went into the conversation, but at the time in the Congress and in the administration, the leadership just wanted it fixed. And the, those that were in charge of Congress at the time, uh, the Republicans, Paul Ryan was the speaker. And they had a system in which they said, we're going to help you guys do this. We don't want the Border Patrol stressed out over their future pay and earnings. We're going to give you a consistent resource and a consistent resource uh, forecast. So like under BAPR, we can tell you how much it's going to cost out for 100 years. We didn't have that before. FLSA went up and down and fluctuated, and sometimes it was difficult to see why those fluctuations existed. So we fixed the administrivia on how the pay was assigned and how we forecast for it in the dollars and cents that are budgeted to the Border Patrol. Um, but in the Hill, to get enough votes to move it out of the committee it was in and for the House to sign off on it, it had to be non-scorable, which means we couldn't use a dime more of the resources that were already allocated in the previous system, which was very difficult. Yeah. That's why there's no compensation beyond the 25%. That's why it's comp time versus. And so that allowed us to get through the gates at Congress. Now, a different Congress might have treated it differently, but at the time, that was our narrow path to fix. And in that meantime, we went through a sequester and a threat of a furlough, and we all got a letter saying we're going to have to take two days off with pay. And so all that was swirling around at the same time. And so the path was always very narrow, but those other constraints made it even more narrow. And so we ended up with something that is predictable for the workforce gives the agency the resource it needs, and then gives the agency the ability to forecast. Um, if you were doing that scenario today, it might look a little bit different. Um, but at the time, it was kind of the best we could do with the conditions that existed. Um, I'm very glad we got it because in a future sequester, we're not going to be impacted like we would have been in the yeah. last go-round. In, in, in the 2010 sequester, all overtime would have been zeroed out. All agents would have taken two days off without pay. Um, and then every year, if the sequester targets stayed every year, that challenge would exist. And so now we're in a situation where if the government tries to roll back funding, it won't affect agents' pay. Um, so, you know, it's it's not perfect, but it was the best we could do at the time. Well, and it's just to me, it's another example of how we have evolved and grown. So you had a much smaller agency that had a, a pay system that allowed for them to remain out on the border because there was so few of us. And it's not like a, a law enforcement agent can just abandon their post. They have to wait till they're relieved and then they come in. So, and if they catch a case and they have to uh, do some processing. And so 
it is very normal for any law enforcement uh, officer to work beyond an eight-hour shift. And the FLSA aspect that you're talking about, you know, of course, it was a sliding scale depending on how many hours that individual worked. That would be divided into their their base pay, and then you divide that number by two, and that was their hourly wage for however many of those hours were above 84 and a half hours. And so it was very difficult for for folks to say, okay, every year the board patrol is going to need this much uh, budget in salary. Well, you translated that to something that still continued to pay our men and women to be out there do the border security mission for those 10 hours, but you knew exactly how much was going to be needed every single year, and that's what Congress likes to see. Right, and and and, and as a guy that watched the budget at headquarters for many many years, that's a real advantage, because at that time we had a ceiling for the budget, but the workforce every year gets a little bit more expensive to pay for. Mm-hmm. And so you get that squeeze, and what, what what happens when you get squeezed like that? You go and ask for more money, and they say no. You've got to find those resources internally. So that means we buy cars later than we should. We fix things later than we should. We don't get new buildings and facilities that we need. We don't, you know, fill in the holes in the border wall. That that's the kind of pressure that goes on the budget if Congress doesn't, you know, bump the number up, or if the sequester forces these targets down. And so um, it's. Again, it was a narrow path. We took the one we had, but there's a certainty to it for the workforce. And I would just say that everybody else got off of FLSA and and, uh, AUO in 1994. And so all of our investigative partners are on a pay that's called LEAP, Law Enforcement Availability Pay. Um, And the stakeholders at the time were afraid to go to that subset of federal pay. I was reluctant as an operator to move to that solution because it would allow individuals to determine whether they needed to be at work or whether they needed to be available, and it paid them the 25% anyway. So there is there was operational risk for me in that system, sure. and I think the BAPRA is a common sense kind of, it's a little bit like LEAP and it's a little bit like what we had before, but it's, it's, it's more operationally driven. It's not something that like, like individuals are weighing whether they should stay or they should go. So, so far we've talked about the centralization of the chain of command, the change of our mission sets. We've talked about how we've uh, evolved in our use of force and how we manage the, the, the policies for, for governing them. We've talked about how our pay reform has, uh, has evolved, or our pay has re- evolved over the years, just how we've grown as an agency from 4,300 to 20,000 or so, all in the space of 20 years. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah. That's it's 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 amazing. Nine eleven had changed the trajectory of where the department, you know, it, it created a whole new department, um, and then we were part of that building block, and that really changed things. But then we also got much better at how we do program management, how we do sustainment and logistics, how we do uh, acquisitions. You know, like it's not a it's not real sexy for operators to talk about acquisitions, but this new pistol that we just put into the yep. fleet. That, that there was a revolutionized way in which they we brought that asset in and they set up that contract in a way that that thing is going to be sustainable over time with very predictable pricing. And then we made these companies compete so that we got a really good deal for the amount of volume that we were um, purchasing. So, so those kinds of things don't necessarily make the border safer, but it makes the organization more efficient which in general terms gives us the ability to plan better. And see, and, this, and you were there 
in, in most cases at the forefront of a lot of these things that, that we are beneficiaries of now. And one of the things that we always impart on our trainees coming up is we're passing the baton on to you, and we expect you to make this organization, this family better than, than we did. You had done that for, for the folks that came before you, and, and so the legacy continues. And so this, I think this paints a really good picture of the types of changes and how we can make that impact in whatever form or fashion. Now, we're not going to all get to be the deputy commissioner of CDP or the <laughs> acting director of ICE or, more importantly, the chief of the Border Patrol. But you can make your impact anywhere you choose to in this career. And that, that's one of the amazing things about being in the Border Patrol, about being in CBP, is there's something out there for everybody. Right, right. And it's important to build on what what's in front of you, mm-hmm. right? So th- so these improvements are not the end of the of the line. They're they're where we are now, and we can always get better. It's it's always, you know, it, it's it, it's like a it's like a gemstone. You can always polish it. It could always be a little bit brighter. Yeah. Um, and so things like integrity, things about the public trust, you can always work to improve on those things. And the same is true for operational things like logistics and forecasting and 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 planning and strategy. All of that stuff can be improved. Take take the as is and and make it better. So I want to switch gears and talk about the Vitello family real quick. So I I have to mention Nuri and I have to mention your wife and and what she has done with an organization called the the Border Patrol Family Network. Can you tell us a little bit about just a, a quick summary of what it is they do for us? Yeah, the Border Patrol Agent Family Network is a nonprofit that she started. And um, I'm glad you brought her up. I'm blessed to have a family, including a wife, that supported me in every endeavor um, that I had in my career. I, I was in a couple of years when we got married, and she's followed me all over the country with, with our children. We moved as a family eight different times. Um, and so when I thought I had an opportunity to make a difference, she was right there behind me, uh, making it all happen, taking care of our children. We raised two children. They're both grown and out of the house now. And so um, she's my life partner, and I'm lucky to have her. Yep. And so the Border Agent Family Network came out of uh, some ideas that she had and that, I, that we recognized together that the Border Patrol and CBP did a pretty good job of providing resources for our workforce. We have the Employee Assistance Program. We have chaplaincy. We have peer support. Um, and, and then we have these unfortunate events where like maybe an agent goes down or something. Um, those mechanisms kind of get into gear and provide support to that individual. But what she realized and what I realized is that those institutions and those programs can only do so much. And if you think about this in your own life, your family does more for you than anybody on the planet. Absolutely. And so the thing that she, the, 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 it's not magic, but what, what she realized based on her experience is if the agent who knows about these programs and gets the memos and gets the emails for open season and changing beneficiaries and all these kind of things, if that agent doesn't bring that information back to home, those people don't want to exist. Very true. Very true. And so what she did is she put a network together first on, on Facebook. She's out on Twitter now doing like social media stuff, but basically connecting the, the people that are at home with each other so they can share experiences, so they can share knowledge about what's out there and then support each other. So when something happens to a, f- a family member out there or when something happens to an agent, then she sort of organizes that community to engage. And that could be a GoFundMe. That could be just Christmas cards. That could be, um, you know, just ha- having somebody that's going to move from one sector to the other. You know, the p- 
people at the new place, well, hey, you can stay at my place or you should really look at this neighborhood or this apartment complex gives, you know, law enforcement, whatever it is. The, she, she's connected that network sort of below the line, if you will, and so that people can go out there and support each other. And she's done a really good job of it. It started when she met the first uh, surviving spouses. She came up for police week. You know this, people might not, that we host the surviving families every year. It's now a commissioner's lunch, but way back in the day, it was the chief's lunch. And after I did it an iteration or two at headquarters, I decided I wanted to make it, I wanted it to have more of a uh, family touch uh, or, or woman's touch, you know, tablecloths and cut flowers and that kind of thing. And so I asked her, I said, hey, can you come and do this? And she goes, yeah, well, tell me when and why. And so she gathered a, a group of a network, you know, of other spouses that were in the area at headquarters. And they came in and they knocked it out of the park. Absolutely. You know, yeah. Pastries, tablecloths, flowers, serving, you know, like you know, they, they volunteered to, you know, to help serve the plates because it's kind of buffet style or whatever. And it was a real transformation in a couple of different ways. It changed how that event felt because it was it was basically lunch on the conference table, which wasn't bad. I mean, it was warm. Yeah. It was intimate with the people who were there, but it looked a little bit more upscale and it felt a little more like home. Like family. Yeah. And then that was her first exposure longer term with survivors. And so she understood where she had been for 20 some years and what they were going through. And so they opened up that channel of communication. And so that inspired her to connect this network and make sure that there's more than just what the institution allows for, but there's this family feeling that, that, that she's helped kind of fortify and connect. And so she's got people in a couple of different places that help her do things. They communicate with each other and they provide support when asked for. And that's just, it's one of the, the many neat things about being a part of this green family, about being part of the Board of Joy, is people like her that do these things on the outside. They stay in our orbit and they make their contribution and things would be so much different without them. And it's, it's hard to put into words what they do, but you know, the, here's, here's this organization that uh, she saw a need and she did it on her own. She voluntarily stepped forward. They, we have people, we're lucky enough to have people that do these things for us that uh, that are part of our family that's what makes this organization so great. And you brought up another great point. I want to I want to make sure we don't skim over, because Eric Aguilar in a previous episode said the same thing. It's for those men and women, not just the border patrol, law enforcement, have that plan ready for your loved ones in the event that something happens. Make sure they know about the life insurance policies and the benefits that are available, who they need to get in contact with. Eric even said something. Do you know where you want to get buried? Do you want to be cremated? Make sure your loved one know knows that. So they don't have to make those decisions or wrestle with those decisions in a very tough time. We don't typically think about those things. These are the types of things that Nuri and her uh, her staff out there with the Family Network and Eric Aguilar and people like her are constantly reminding us of and trying to make sure that our family members are aware of. Yeah. It, 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 when I was young in my career, I wasn't paying attention to the contributions I was making to the TSP. I wasn't paying, paying attention to what my life insurance situation was. But I got some advice early on in my career from a, an assistant chief, Ed Aguirre. Um, and he, he pulled me aside and we were, he was getting to know me and he asked me a couple of questions about my TSP and financing and all this other kind of thing. And I was like, I don't know anything about that. And, you know, he kind of gave me a talking to. He said, hey, this is your future. This is how you're going to live in mm -hmm. retirement. And what Nuri has done is kind of sort of communicated that to the, the, the spouses, the people that are home. You have to be invested in, like you said, you got to make these decisions before you have to make these decisions. And so 
she's been really good about connecting people and finding support where it's required. And, and, uh, and you know, she's, she's really good at it. She's, you know, it, it's a real passion of hers. And I'm lucky that, you know, it's another way for us to stay connected mm-hmm. to what we feel like is our family. And after what, you know, no one would blame her if she kind of just kicked up her feet and said, Hey, I, I, you know, went through this battle with you for 34 years. I'm, I'm done. Um, but she really, she really has a passion for it to help. Well, people. knowing her, she would never do that. that. That's just not who she is. Right. And right. as lucky as you are to to have her in your life, so are we. We're very lucky to have her and and, and all of uh, the folks of the Family Network. Let's talk about honor first. Let's talk about our motto as United States Border Patrol. And I mentioned all the things that you've done in your career, but probably most important to, to all of us is that you were our chief. So I want to hear from you what honor first means to you. Yeah, it's pride of my lifetime, and we talked about it a little bit on this show. The it's 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 having and acting and deliberating on what it means for the public to trust you, so that you have in your own mind a set of circumstances, a set of goals, a set of personal beliefs that are in some ways tied to this institution, um, and so you have to act in a way, both on duty and off duty, in a way that preserves your ability to hold the trust of the public. Because if you lose that, then not only you suffer, but the institution is going to suffer. And so when we talk about honor first, it's this overarching idea that you are going to act in a way that is reflective of that culture of people can trust me because I'm going to do the right thing, whether folks are looking or not. Uh, I'm going to do the right thing and I'm going to uphold my oath because I swore to the people of America that I was going to protect the Constitution, which preserves all of the of the freedoms and liberty we have in this country. And so honor first means you act in a way that's reflective of your desire to continue to have the trust of the public. Well said. Well said. So you have your entire Green family listening. Any message you want to give to them? Yeah, I, I, I kind of want to, my heart goes out a little bit to the workforce and what they're facing now, especially in the Valley. You know, we've seen these surges. Um, luckily, at this point, they're not being blamed for the conditions. That was, that was the last surge. Um, and so, you know, keep your chin up. Um, this is a great institution. There are great people in it. Um, but more importantly, the people we serve deserve our best. And so, you know, keep their chins up. Please do all you can like we just talked about, you know, to, to preserve that honor first motto and, and do all you can uh, to protect the public trust, to secure our border, and, and be safe. Chief, thanks for joining us. No, no, my pleasure. Ladies and gentlemen, that's going to do it for another episode of What's Important Now. Stay tuned next time. We'll talk again soon in Honor First.